he didn't play basketball until high school, and racism denied him the opportunity to pursue his talent throughout a stellar career. But the speedy, gravity-defying player they nicknamed Rabbit made a contribution to civil rights and the game that remained largely untold. Until now, we'll meet the first man ever called a superstar next. The ninth annual All-Star Basketball Game played in Detroit, Michigan. Its All-Star lineup included the best players from the East and West. This is number 23 of the West team, Elgin Baylor. His sparkling play helped the West to an upset victory. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis. And this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. Now number one in podcasting, thanks to loyal listeners like you. In this episode, our time machine travels back to the American Civil Rights era to meet a man who fought the racial discrimination of his day on the basketball court while using his platform to support those battling in courts of law. We enjoy this six foot five inch pioneer story in Elgin Baylor, the man who changed basketball, giving us play by play courtside for the man who invented hang time, is award winning cultural critic and sports writer Bijan C. Bain. You've seen his work in the New York Times and the Washington Post, as well as the Root, Boston Herald, Essence, and Washingtonian. Bijan Bain is a member of the United States Basketball Writers Association, a founding member of the Internet Baseball Writers Association of America, and an executive board member and media relations director for the Association for Professional Basketball Research. You can check him out at bijanc.wordpress.com, on Twitter at Bijan C. Bain, and on Twitter at Bijan C. Bain. That name is B-I-J-A-N, the letter C, B-A-Y-N-E. Okay, now that we've laced up our converse and settled into the bleachers, let's join Bijan Bain and meet Elgin Baylor, the man who changed basketball. I'm joined on the line by Bijan C. Bain, author of Elgin Baylor, the man who changed basketball. Welcome back to the History Author Show, sir. Thanks for having me on again. Well, I really wanted to talk about this book basically since the minute we wrapped our last interview and you told me about it, and in part because that's a bold statement, the man who changed basketball. And I know readers and people in general can be pretty cynical and immune to hyperbole. The examples I thought of was how every new TV show or laundry detergent, the marketing says it's like the moon landing, it's the greatest thing ever, and you have little dancing lemons. My grandmother, who came from Asia Minor, she used to say, in America, everything talks, every commercial has something, you know, a 
a little fruit or a vegetable, oh, you know, the your box of soap powder. Yeah, your stomach, right? Everything is ripped out of you and <laughs> to be singing and everything is just a big splashy production. You want to go out and get it even if you're six years old and don't wash your own clothes. You think it must be great. That's an interesting outsider observation if you think about it. Yeah, right. We're just used to it, right? Like with uh, baby food, you know, you, there's a picture of a baby and some countries they put what's in the box on the can. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they come here see a baby on the can or a cat and a dog in the dog food can and say, wait a minute, what is that what's in here? And uh, of course, we're just used to those things. Nice, the outside perspective. And we get that here in Elgin Baylor, the man who changed basketball. But I wanted to talk about that subhead. Here's a man, the 1966 Sports Illustrated cover feature calls a tiger who can beat anything. He really lives up to that title. First man that's ever called a superstar in his field. So for those who doubt that, who say, man, he couldn't be that good, set the stage for us with a little alternate history. How is basketball different today had Elgin Baylor never stepped onto the hardwood? Well, there's stylistic ways and then there's branding ways in which he changed the game. I would say stylistically, he's the first player that anybody can really remember seeing and no one can remember anybody that he seems to have modeled himself after that played in the manner that he played in terms of changing hands in midair with the ball. The fact that he did a lot of things that were uh, improvisational after he'd already left his feet or right before he left his feet, really powerful drives to the basket, starting out on one side of the basket and coming up on the opposite side, reverse with English. There's a lot of things that he did that were sort of midair adjustments that National TV audiences certainly weren't necessarily used to seeing Now, there might have been people that did these things in the schoolyard, but in terms of just mainstream culture and in terms of somebody doing it on, on that level of exposure, nobody could remember somebody that was the precursor to him. In terms of the branding, there was really no uh, major professional basketball in, in Los Angeles before the Minneapolis Lakers moved to Los Angeles largely because he really outgrew that market of uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul. He really brings everybody with him, makes everybody stop and take notice. You mentioned TV, and it reminded me to remind listeners that this is a time that every game is not available 24-7. You certainly don't have clips on YouTube. You don't have Sports Center playing the highlights. And yet every Major League basketball player you could name today, every star since his day, If you look, and you did this, obviously, when you're writing Elgin Baylor, there's a line or a paragraph or something or multiple places where they're giving him credit. And then they have that moment that you mentioned where they say, he he made all that up. He invented it. And then I was able to pattern it off it. But he really is the first one. He's the pioneer of this stuff. You mentioned midair adjustments. That can just pass by us today because, okay, that makes sense. We're used to seeing guys off the ground. But He's the first one that does that. He looks at the game completely in a new way. He does what Bob Ryan, who was named National Sports Writer of the Year four times by the National Sportscasters and Sports Writers Association, says in the forward for your book, he takes a game that was essentially horizontal and occasionally vertical and makes it diagonal. And I just love somebody in any field especially something like athletics that I can't do, that comes in and looks at it (laughs) from completely, in this case, literally a different angle. So 
I, I, when when I think of that, I realize there's people who are there who are always going to be naysayers who will tell you, hey, that's not the way it's done here. That's not the way you play the game. You can't do that. Think of the forward pass or the way Derek Jeter played. You can't play like that. That's not the right stance. So how does he overcome that? Especially since these naysayers, he also has the additional burden of racism in the game to convince them, let me play this way. People are going to like it. It's going to be good. And it's going to make everyone around me better. Well, one thing that he had an advantage of in basketball is he sort of comes out of nowhere. He's he's a highly recruited high school player, but he ends up going to college in Idaho at a school that two years after he enrolled, shut down its sports program. Yeah. That's how small the school was. I mean, it's 500 students. So it's not like, I mean, he he sneaks up on everybody and he he's appealing. He's, he's appealing in personality. He's appealing in attire. He's appealing in team leadership. He's appealing in terms of his uh, dignity and his public stances on how he likes to be treated as as a man, and he has an appealing style. And in basketball, especially probably youth, but even adults to some extent, there's something associated with the fact that the player is in flight. The way kids talk about Michael Jordan and the "I want to be like Mike" ad campaign, and the fact that he's flying. And the fact that there was a uh, song that was made, I think, for the Jordan movie Space Jams, I Believe I Can Fly, and Dr. J is waving the, the ball in the air with his huge hands, and he's flying, and Connie Hawkins is in the air, and they're airborne, and they have hang time. There's something about flight that makes a basketball player to their younger followers this thing, you know, like this Peter Pan, the Superman figure. It's like they're airborne for a long period of time and gravity, and they're not subject to gravity. So he had that going for him. And again, the fact that he sort of comes out of nowhere, like he's not this nationally known figure in high school. He's not this goes from the College of Idaho to Seattle U. Then he's in Minneapolis. You know, it's like. <laughs> he's not Oscar Roberts in the high school or Will hmm. Chamberlain with like 400 colleges are beating down his door. And then he's this person who can do these magical things in the air. And there's something about being in the air in basketball that separates it from, you know, football and, and baseball in that sense. So Frank DeFord even wrote in the early 1970s that as far as he could think, to his knowledge, the term superstar was actually coined to describe Belgian Baylor. Amazing. You're talking about him and gravity, and this to me is what a great book does, is it makes you think again and you see those things. I've already mentioned a couple of them here that I've looked at differently, and I'm thinking the phrase we use is defy gravity, right? And think about the word defy and the word defiant. We don't just say beat gravity. I mentioned the moon landing, right? Why was that so huge? Part of that was, hey, you broke the surly bonds of Earth. But we say defy gravity, like, hey, you can't keep me down. We've envied the birds forever, right? And so you see an athlete already, he's great. And then you say, but also he can lift himself off the ground. He can do that extra thing that we've dreamed about doing forever. And when you're a kid, it may sound like coming from an adult man like myself, that that's too much to be that worked up in it. But you watch him play, you read your book, Elgin Baylor, The Man Who Changed Basketball. And for me, I'm that little kid again because I still can't do it. It doesn't matter matter how old I am, right? (laughs) It's like it, it gives you that. And the fact that television is newly covering it and things like that for him, it's really amazing that he's able to do that. And 
just think to do it. It's almost as if it's natural. Like birds, hey, you're going to get shoved out of the nest and they fly. For him, these changes to the game, he even doesn't know where they come from. When he's talking about it, as I'm reading your book, he just does it. It comes natural when he thinks of ways to solve these challenges in the game and to score. Well, I think one of the reasons why in the 1960s that made him so popular with fans, that I would equate him to maybe Gail Sayers in football or Muhammad Ali in terms of being this electrifyingly different figure to watch. I think what made, it, what made that so attractive to fans is that he's doing things that a little kid would go out a couple hours after they watched the game on TV or the next day and try to imitate because they're so different from what the other nine players on the court were doing during that game. So you can't really go out and be tall. So you can't <laughs> imitate true. the Russell Chamberlain Awards unless you're playing on a little basket in your backyard. And kids didn't have eight-foot baskets back then. They didn't have baskets and goals that were adjusted to their height and their age. So you can't really mimic them. But you can try to mimic this person who is, to your point, is not relegated to the laws of physics. And I think that made him interesting to children. It's nice to have a hero when you're that age that you can go out and try the things. I mean, you wouldn't be going out trying to hopefully do what Batman did. And I think if you tried to do what Superman did down the slide, maybe we all tried that once and that was about it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, a lot of kids got yeah. hurt on imitating either George Reeves yeah. or Evil Knievel. Oh, gosh, Evil Knievel. There you go. I mean, uh, that's, uh, I'm picturing that. We talked about the Schwinn Stingray last time, jumping that over things. And nowadays they wear helmets. There was no helmets back then. Well, even Evil Knievel would tell the kids, don't try. That, that's where the expression came right. from. Don't try to do this at yeah, all. Yeah, right. He, Literally where it came from. <laughs> every bone in his body. But, well, that's part of their little sort of mythic or heroic appeal. I mean, you could either say that he's the Charles Lindbergh of the game or the John Glenn of the game, depending on how you want to look at the play. And also the fact that he overcomes this almost unbelievable string of challenges himself. He can't play on a white court as a kid. He ha- There are such things as white courts when he's a kid, which tells you something about his era. He has to use tennis balls. Then he's, he's really happy he gets a volleyball that he can play with. And then finally an actual basketball. There is a challenge of the white scouts coming to his games. You said about going to Idaho, they eliminate the basketball program. So... What do you hope that readers will learn about his perseverance alone to get to have a chance to step on the court and show people how great he is as we follow Elgin Baylor's life story? Well, I think he's an unlikely superstar in that he doesn't really enroll in college until 20. He's working a day job in a furniture store with his brothers and playing semi-pro with them. Then he goes to that college and it's a tiny college. Then he goes to another college and he takes that college to the NCAA championship game, but other than him, it's really arguably a mediocre team. (laughs) Then he goes to Minneapolis, and they used to be a dynasty, but they aren't when he gets there. And he takes them to the finals his rookie year, even though they they didn't even win half of the games, but they upset the defending champion, St. Louis Hawks, in the Western Finals, which means they advanced to the finals, and they played the Boston Celtics. I don't even think that Laker team won. I think they were like 33 and. 57 on the year or something crazy like that, 33 and 47. So he sort of sneaks up on the country, but he's got this sense of himself and his sense of how he uh, demands to be treated that might stem from the fact that his mother works for the Department of the Interior, his father works for the school system, 
they're not really D.C. natives. His parents moved from Virginia to D.C. right after he's born. And I think when you're in a city that's federal and in a city where when you do certain things and you perform in the federal government, there's a, a system of promotion and hiring that if you've hit these certain markers or metrics, you get promoted and you become a GS6 or a GS9 or a GS10 or a GS12 or what have you. And his mother ends up working for Secretary of the Interior, Udall. So I think a lot of Washington kids are exposed to this system of, if you do this, then you'll get that. If you do this, then this you know, will be your reward or your acknowledgement. And in a Jim Crow society, <laughs> which was the segregated Washington, D.C. of his youth, there's sort of an achievable thing, but then a non-achievable thing in some sense in terms of like your point about the segregated parks. But then when he escapes from D.C. and he goes to Hollywood, he's demanding to be not treated specially, but treated equally, even when he sues Donald Sterling when he's an older man. It brings to mind the fact that he's the first NBA player to boycott a game because of racial discrimination. But also he leads that boycott later because of the promises that have been made to them. And that's a pension, right? So drawing the connection between the dots here, that's something if you were in the federal government, if they promised you your pension, you're going to get your pension and you're going to have a union fighting for you. And this is something that the players demand. They may be unionized, but they haven't won yet. This That's their first victory that they get. And that strikes me as that's something in his character that he learns from that period where, hey, if you're, if you're going to promise somebody something, if you're going to meet your work quotas or you're going to do the right thing in your job, then you're going to get your promotion. And this is something that when he sees it's not happening in basketball, for instance, if there's nobody that's equal to him in talent, but he sees when they're bringing in other black players that they'll keep the white player if he's exactly equal to the black player, just because they have an unofficial quota on the teams. So those are all things. This is not just a book about basketball, but about a person that you can read about and see his life story and he's still with us right he's in his, his mid 80s late 80s so the story isn't even yeah, done he's been, he's been about 85 now yeah so yeah i think you know he had these brothers that were taller than he if you can imagine that like six six and six nine and they're older so their names are kermit and sal baylor and i think one played basketball on the u.s patent office team so even you know his older brothers you know they're working in furniture stores they're working for the patent office you know, it's like an orderly, you do this, and you get a check, and you, through five years you move up, and you get a bigger house, and you get a better car now, maybe move out to the suburbs. And he's this other family member who is in the entertainment industry, and he's sacrificing his knees and wear and tear and long flights and long train rides to play in all these other cities when the NBA is essentially sort of almost rising out of a minor league-ish level compared to baseball and football at that time in the late 50s and early 60s. And by the time of the 64 All-Star game, when the players threatened to boycott, the boycott that you referenced, you know, he's this guy who basically moved the NBA to Hollywood. And he's got these knees that are not going to last forever because of his style of play and the type of courts that they play on and the travel conditions and not having trainers and not having team doctors and not having arthroscopic surgery and things like that. And so, you know, you can only do this for a limited amount of time, just like you can only do it for a limited amount of time now, but you've got charter flights and team doctors and team trainers and arthroscopic surgery and all these type of things. And, 
the players basically give the owners an ultimatum right before the 64 All-Star game is about to be aired on national TV. And this telecast is a national TV contract is predicated on this telecast drawing good ratings. And the players know they have a little leverage. And this is when you have, you know, star players in a lot of markets. And you've got Oscar Robertson's been in the league about four years. You've got Wilt. You've got Bill Russell. You've got Jerry West has been in the league four years. And you've got Baylor and Bob Pettit. And the guys are like, look, if they're not going to give us a pension when we're older or give a pension to the guys that came before us and played in the early 50s when the league was new, you know, what are, what are we doing out here? We're just sacrificing our bodies and our later life health to make the owners rich. I mean, they, they, they're going to get the TV money. They get the money from the arenas. They, you know, they have all kinds of things that they do. And I don't think they're really taking us seriously. So when Baylor and all the other players are doing these last-minute negotiations and writing these scribbled notes to the owners and messengers are delivering these things to the owners in the stands or in their hotel rooms. We don't want to do it unless you do this or this or this. You haven't met our demands. Baylor hears that his Laker owner, Bob Short, is outside the All-Star locker room, which is in the Boston Garden. And Short threatens loudly enough for Baylor to hear it outside the locker room. If Baylor and West are in there boycotting, I'm going to fire them. And Baylor says something with an expletive in it about Bob Short, the Lakers owner, who was the guy that moved the team from Minneapolis to L.A., basically banking on Baylor's stardom and, and appeal. He says something with an expletive about Bob Short, and he's really he's like, you know, we're not going to play. We're not coming out of the locker room. We're, we're going to hold our ground until the owners uh, meet our demands. And Harvey Aratine, who wrote a historic book about the history of the Madison Square Garden and basketball there, says the moment that Baylor cursed Bob Short from within the locker room and told the police officer or security guard in the Boston Garden who was guarding the room that they're not coming outside, you can trace the NBA's current astronomical <laughs> salaries to that moment. That's something, too, because that's not something he did a lot, used foul language, but he used it really effectively there, and maybe more so because he didn't curse Bill Cosby when he was discussing his criticism of young comics then, particularly Richard Pryor. He said, you know, I understand working blue. We all worked blue in the old days, but it was to have somewhere to go. He said, if you start off that way, there's really nowhere to go, and there's no real shock effect if you're working your whole act. Here's somebody who is universally respected and who is known not to be like that. And maybe the owner thinks he can intimidate him by that sort of passive-aggressive yelling outside the locker room. And he gets it right back, and that has to rally all the other players who say, wow, it's like when you're a kid and somebody, you know, a teacher or something who's never never yells suddenly is mad, and you realize, wait a minute, oh, we better stand up and take notice. So I could see that being a real big moment, and I was going to say before you described it just what an intense moment it is just to read in Elgin Baylor, the man who changed basketball. You almost feel like you are watching that shift, the birth of something new, of people standing up for themselves in a sport where – you just, oh, I'm playing for the love of the game, and, and that that's fine. But, hey, wait a minute. Now it's become a big industry. And I remember for that, for instance, they say, oh, no, we're only getting a couple thousand dollars for the TV rights. It's really nothing. We're not getting anything. You know, all of those things that you know, we associate with pro sports that you know they tell you it's a family until it comes time to make a contract. And then they say, well, it's a business and vice versa. And so that's really transformative 
Well, guys were becoming more savvy. It was almost the mid-60s. And guys had to work in the off-season. So guys had to have car dealerships and restaurants, and they had to sell insurance. So they kind of knew, because they were becoming owners themselves, you know, they ran basketball camps in the summertime because they didn't make enough money to sustain them throughout the year, and they can't really work that job after they're 35. So the money has to last them the rest of their lives. So since most of these guys that were decent players had second businesses where they monetized or capitalized off their name, they knew that a person who was a much larger business person than they, like a tycoon, tied things in the books. So they knew when the owner, you know, you wouldn't know this when you were a rookie, but after your fifth or tenth year, if you were an all-star, you would know the owner could say, oh, we're bleeding money, I can't pay you more, or we're bleeding money, I can't give you a long-term contract, or uh, we're not doing that well with the, you know, with TV or the box office, so I can't afford to pay you guys, you know, more than you made when you were averaging 15 points and now you're averaging 20 points, you're averaging 12 rebounds, you still not even average double-digit rebounds, or we're moving to a new market. They could say, you know, because of the concessions, because of the parking, because of the money we pay to advertise this, to promote that, I can't give you a raise. We can't give you guys a pension. And these guys were, you know, some of these guys were becoming, you know, mid-60s. This is the Mad Men era. And they're like, yeah, I I know a little bit about business. (laughs) And you mentioned there about his knee injuries and about his, because of the way he played the game, he adapts his game through the knee injuries. But I put two things together when I'm reading that in Elgin Baylor, and that's that, Today, he would have not only that golden, well-worn path to follow when he gets a call from the then Minneapolis Lakers, where as soon as a kid shows talent now in any sport, there's there's people scouting him and on him, and they're ready to, to help him out, pick him up in their helicopter, as Greg Schiano, my alma mater's Rutgers University right now, our new coach for football is doing, dropping in in the helicopter and, and pressing, you know, imagine you're a high school kid, you're going to go flying up in a helicopter. It's a pretty cool recruiting tool if you're 14, <laughs> right? Speaking of flying and the power of flight. Yeah, I think, I think he caught a train the first time he went to Idaho. Caught a train from D.C. <laughs> yeah, there would, would have been almost no flying. There is a great moment, though, of flight in Elgin Baylor. I'll let listeners pick up the book and read it. But when they're afraid they're going to crash, and he just deals with it so well. You know, the plane's running out of gas, right? Well, not only that, on his first, for lack of a better term, recruiting trip to go to see what the Seattle University was like when he was playing at Idaho when they were going to disband the game, he's afraid to get in that plane because <laughs> he'd never flown. That's funny. So the person who's known for flight. <laughs> yeah, didn't want to get in a plane. <laughs> Oh, it's kind of funny. But sports medicine was the other thing I wanted to link that to, where that's an entire specialty and field now. How does he confront those knee injuries and, again, prove to the naysayers, in this case doctors who tell him he'll never play again, that he's still capable of greatness and still worthy of those contracts and still going to be a leader out there in the game, still be a force to draw eyeballs to TV? Well, there's a couple of things involved. His surgeon was Dr. Frank was Dr. Robert Curlin, who's the partner of Dr. Frank Joe, who attempted to fix Sandy Koufax's elbow famously in the mid-1960s, although Koufax had to retire at 30 because he just, for one thing, just the level of pain, and also he didn't want to live off painkillers the rest of his life or his career. So Joe and Curlin were like colleagues, and Curlin operated on Baylor's knee shortly before that 64 All-Star game incident. So he was already having some problems, and they said, well, you might have, you know, loose 
particles floating around in there, you know, you need cap, there might be some things you want to look at. You play on it, it would hurt some nights, you know, better than others. Some days he could score, some days he could stop and start and make, you know, sudden twists and turns and it didn't bother him as much. Some days it did, you know, because he grew up playing outdoors on, on hard surfaces. And things got things got worse to the point that he actually hurt it and had to be carried off the court. And there was a surgery where Curlin determined you shattered your kneecap and we had to take a piece, we had to take that object out that was about the size, I think he said maybe of a, um, it was bigger than a dime, I remember. It might have been the size of a quarter. Yeah, I think you said quarter in the book. I just jotted down to mention that. Yeah, can you imagine? So, So now this person that's, basically known for their explosiveness and their lift and their drive and their ability to launch off one leg or one foot, depending on whether they're going right or left, is not solely relegated to a floor game, but they're going to have to compromise and modify their game. And through rehab, which is, you know, nothing like 2020 rehab, and through just perseverance and didn't want to retire at that age, although he had thoughts of it. But he didn't want to play and be a substandard Elgin Baylor, which is a big, which goes back to his pride and his dignity. He worked himself back into shape. You know, he did some things that he didn't used to do before in, in terms of training, or running, and the weights and the cycle. Not like weights today, but the kind of weights he, he used just to rehabilitate the muscles around the knee. And he was able to play uh, and still be an all-star. He wasn't the bailer of before both knee injuries because he had another one in the in the uh, playoffs against Baltimore in '65, and he wasn't even able to play the rest of the uh, the playoffs, and they didn't even advance to the finals that year. And that was that was a pretty bad injury. And he was like 31 by then, so he was older, more wear and tear. But he just was determined to prove the physicians wrong because Curlin had his doubts at first, and to also just go out on a better note and go out uh, on his own terms as opposed to settling at age 30 to like, you know, this is pretty much it. You know, I'm going to have to do something else for a living. As you're speaking and as people will read in Elgin Baylor, the book does something that's unique that I'm trying to picture another book that does it or think of another book that does it, and that is all these stories so much bring this picture of him that you have on the cover of Elgin Baylor, the man who changed basketball, to life. It makes the fact that he's wearing a brace on one knee, the position of his play with the ball, the, the age you could see, a little bit of wear in his face, it is, his alertness to his game, the Los Angeles jersey that he has on there. Everything is so brought to life in the cover, in the picture of him, that I think if people even are completely outside of sports. I think if you drop this somewhere, they never even heard of basketball. They would know some of what was going on and they would want to know what this man's story is. For instance, I think it was uh, O.C. Umanura who played for the New York Giants. And he said he got a blanket when he was a kid and it was over. I forget the country that he was in, in Africa. And he said, I thought this guy must be really fearsome because he had a patch over one eye. It was an Oakland Raiders blanket that his mom had given him. And I just thought, what, who? I found him yeah. so mysterious. I used to fall asleep at night yeah. thinking about him and thinking about how you know, what his life must have been like and, and how he lost that eye. And that, Yeah, that's how kids process things. 
Yeah. And this cover makes me think of that. Like he comes to life every time I close the book. It's as if the cover has changed because I see a little bit more about him as a man and an athlete when I look at the photo new. Yeah, the playing conditions of that era were horrible. I mean, the first couple of years that he played in Minneapolis, the players say that the floor was essentially, you know, you, you know, they had the, the portable wooden floors and it was essentially over a cement floor. In, in another other arenas, of course, it's over ice. Yeah, right. True. Well, like and today, then, at least they melt it, right? Yeah, but there's condensation from the ice. Yeah. So yeah, very very poor, very poor play, playing conditions, travel conditions. The book is really about the NBA as a startup. In some sense, this is backstory. The NBA as a startup and how Baylor and the Chamberlains and the Russells and the Robertsons grew it to be the third major sport. In Teaneck, New Jersey, there's the Armory. And I know when I was a little kid, they, you'd go to games there, and it's an actual military armory, and uh, it wasn't far from where I grew up. You know, if you got there early enough, which you would because you'd hope to see some of your players, you'd see some of the players having to squeegee the or sweep the water that was leaking in off the roof onto the floor, and they, they would be doing it themselves. We didn't have the ice girls or whatever they have in uh, hockey and in basketball now. You know, it was actually leaking. And think of what leaking does to wood. You know, you don't want to be running on that. And, no. again, it brings another, th- another thing in the picture that that brings to life is I'm looking at his sneakers. And I'm saying, you know, those are just off-the-shelf sneakers. They, they don't, I don't know when they start to really develop those, but that can't be good for your knee either. All, all of these things come to life. Imagine heating a downtown arena in Minneapolis in the winter. Oh, yeah. Gosh, I didn't think of that. <laughs> and then be sweating and then try not to get sick and go to your, get into your car or what have you. So many challenges that the guy faces. Well, when he was playing, these guys were traveling – primarily by train before there was a team in L.A. because it was less expensive for the owners to go back to the point about the, the threat and boycott. And even if they, you know, Boston to St. Louis, Boston to Minneapolis, Boston to Detroit, Boston to Fort Wayne, a lot of it was by train. Long train trips for guys that are 6'4", 6'5", 6'6", 6'8", 6'10". And they didn't have the kind of equipment managers that they did in the other two sports. So... They would carry their road uniform with them, and they would wash their own road uniforms out in the hotel sinks. Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine? <laughs> and then they slept in standard beds. So they slept in beds that were designed for you and I. Oh, wow. I didn't even think of that. They probably had to sleep diagonal. And the train seats that they sat in were designed for you and I, or people even smaller than you and I. You mentioned hotels, and that brings up a moment that you cover in Elgin Baylor, the man who changed basketball. It's an incident in Charleston, West Virginia, with the Lakers, and you call it one of his most unforgettable incidents of racial discrimination. Recap that for us in a way to illustrate the game-to-game challenges he dealt with as a player. Imagine getting there when you're exhausted off a train. They won't even let you into the hotel. So recount that for us and how he deals with it and how he really changes the city. Well, the Lakers had a player when Baylor was in his early years. He's actually a rookie uh, during this incident. And they had a player that had played for the University of West Virginia named Hot Rod Hundley, very flashy player. And to, again, capitalize off his marketability, they played a game in Charleston, West Virginia. It wasn't an exhibition. It was actually in the middle of January, uh, scheduled against the Cincinnati Royals. So when the team checks into the hotel, the captain of the team, Vern Mickelson, who dates back to the old George Mikan, uh, Jim Pollard, dominant Laker championship teams. He's still around. He's a veteran. He's checking the ball club in, and Baylor's standing next to him. 
and the hotel desk clerk sees the bailer and Ed Fleming and Blue Ellis are standing there and they're Negroes. And he's like, I can't check these guys in. And Mickelson's like, what are you talking about? He said, I can't, I, these guys can't stay at this hotel. And, and Mickelson says, but Bob Short has made arrangements with this hotel. He knew we had colored players. This is not a surprise. You know, we've been traveling all day. There, there's no alternate accommodations or lodging. What are you, what are you talking about? Let me get Bob Short on the phone. So while Mickelson's dialing Short, you know, Baylor and the other, you know, Ed Fleming and Blue Ellis have to decide what they're going to do. And Hot Rod Hunley doesn't want to be embarrassed in his hometown in this game. And the game is a night game. So there's a couple of things that happen. One, while these things are being supposedly worked out with the no problem bringing black players, understanding that Short was under Baylor and Ed Fleming and Boo Ellis decide to go get something to eat. And they're turned away there as well. You know, the dining establishment is like, you know, we don't serve color. So that doesn't work. So they tried back to the hotel. Mickelson's still dealing with the larger situation. Go to the locker room. Hunley and all the guys are suiting up for the game. And Baylor tells Hunley, Rod, I can't dress. He's like, what do you mean? He's like, you know what happened today? He said, I'm not an animal that's just let out in a cage. I'm not going to dress. So Hunley tries to talk him into suiting up and playing because, you know, even though the game is being played partly because of Hunley's appeal, Baylor's having a pretty good rookie year and a lot of fans are there to see him as well. He's on the marketing poster and everything. And a, bu- a bunch of bis- local businessmen staged the game, so they put up the money and things. And he explained to me, I, I can't do that. I can't be one person here and then one person in the hotel. That's not how this works. And Hungry thinks about it, and he's like, you know something? You know, I understand. And if you can't do it, baby, just don't dress. It reads like a Hallmark movie, and I know it's not. It's real life. When he comes back, people want him back in the city, right? And they are apologetic and they're realizing that that this was a mistake the way that he was treated i mean i think he can only get a hot dog on the street when he's looking for for food there while they're trying to work it out in the hotel and i said that's the power you know and it makes me not only want to be a better person which you would expect in history but i look back at myself and i say i'm ashamed of those times that i didn't take a stand on something that would have been much smaller without an arena full of people that had paid to see me it's amazing as a rookie as a young man that he's willing to take that stand when it would have been so easy. I guess that's why we, we call them hero and we have words like bravery because it would have been so easy to just complain but then do what everyone expected him to do. And yet he doesn't. He says, I'm not going to suit up. The fact that he was always able to keep that big picture, whether it was of the game or whether it was in his life outside it, just made him really compelling to me. I was glad that you sent me the book because I said, it's not just a basketball book. It's a book of life. It had to really mix the other guys. I mean, of course, you've been around a guy, you know that they have a certain standard of, of what they will put up with and what they won't. Because, you know, you're on the road with this guy. Hunley and he were roommates, so they knew each other pretty well. But to sort of capsulize it in an event that you can actually quantify, like the boycott remark or response to Bob Short, or not playing that night when he was a rookie in Charleston, 
that gave his teammates and other guys around the league that read about these things and heard about it the next day actual incidents that they could point to, like, you know, this guy is really considering how marketable he is and considering what he's doing for our brand and upping the visibility of the league. He, he's really a person that's willing to put himself on the line. Now I have to consider where I'm going to draw the line in my life. Because when he does this, this is before people really knew that Bill Russell was outspoken. So as far as we know, he's the first athlete in a major sport to actually sit out a game for this reason. And he did it as a rookie. So, you know, there's an arc in his life that you can trace from that incident to when he sues Donald Sterling that's a consistent arc. You're enjoying my full court press with Bijan C. Bain, author of Elgin Baylor, The Man Who Changed Basketball. You can find our guest on Twitter at Bijan C. Bain. He's quite active there. We're often talking about all sorts of stuff, not just the books that he's written. But it's good to see a person that's on Twitter that's using it for good to give their opinions, to talk about things. Cat photos are fine, but <laughs> other than that, I always like to see you there in my feed. So I hope people follow you if they're on Twitter. You can also visit bijanc.wordpress.com. His name is B-I-J-A-N. The letter C, B-A-Y-N-E. Sports Biblio, the athletic experience in books, history, and culture, writes of the book, quote, One of the NBA's most underrated superstars has never been the subject of a biography until now. Bain, author of previous books about American sports, race, and ethnicity, explains how the soft-spoken Baylor was a more influential proponent for racial equality then his demeanor would indicate. Now, Bijan, I talked before about the idea of being loud, about him swearing, and I often think about that, about him being soft-spoken since I read the book, and I say, I, I, I have to remind myself throughout my life, especially being from a Greek background, you know, we're pretty loud. I say it's because you had all those islands you had to shout to be heard in another island. <laughs> but I remind myself, I don't always have to be loud to be heard. Now, my experience is different than, say, my wife's experience. But if you're a man, you're a man of a certain size, there's always a threat you might get thrown through a plate glass window. So people won't treat you the <laughs> way that they will a woman. In this era, it's a difference of... The man code. Yeah, it's always that threat there. It always bugs me. I know on 6th Avenue outside Radio City, I'd go to lunch, and the one woman that I work with, she's maybe 100 pounds. And those bike messengers come whipping up 6th Avenue, and I'll see them bearing down on her, and then I step off the curb. Oh, then they'll turn. <laughs> so what, we going to run her down if I didn't get off, I'm thinking, you know? And so... Isn't that something? <laughs> I try to be aware of those things. Yeah. And so... It, ha it, happens on the, it happens on the rush to get on subway cars in the major cities, too. It's like the yeah, largest yeah. guy, the most inconsiderate guy. He's busy. He's got to get home. He's Mr. Important. And the people that <laughs> they it. bump into or don't say, excuse me, to are women. Yep. That's true. And they'll push you into them. What's that all about? <laughs> like, really? I, and I get pushed, and they'll be like, pushing me. And maybe they think that I'm that person. I'm being inconsiderate. And they'll be like, there's room there pu pushing me. I said, there's a, there's a person here. There's maybe, I mean, I'm 6'3". So, you know, if there's a little five foot four even woman in front of me, they don't see them. I said, you know, there's a person here. You can't see them. But, you know, I'm not going to just crush somebody because you're trying to push yourself onto the R train. Or because you know that that person is not going to physically threaten you if yeah, you do that. Yeah, yeah. And this is the case here. I'm reading your book, and I'm thinking of how he processes those things and how he 
chooses to persuade in different ways. Chapter 8 is titled A Leader of Men, and this covers his role in that boycott, and he leads to that victory, that first victory for a players' union in pro sports. But the thing that interested me was how he persuaded players, especially the white players who didn't exper- excuse me, didn't experience his who didn't share his experience with the team owners. He gets them to stand up. And the thing that it reminded me of when you mentioned it was you say how the white players would have a father-son relationship with ownership of the team. And he didn't. I usually avoid contemporary political figures, but Joe Biden, when he was talking about these segregationists that he was friends with, he made this comment where he said, well, they were always nice to me. They never called me boy. They only called me son. And I thought, well, what are you thinking? Of course they didn't call you that. It was <laughs> That was a specific thing. Of course they called you son, and they never called you boy. It never would have occurred to them. That's not what the dynamic was. That's the thing. They did look at you as a son, and they didn't look at somebody like Elgin Baylor as a son. They looked at him as as boy, so they called him that. That was That's the point of the slur. Yeah, it's almost like they were playing in separate NBAs. Ah, that's a good way to Bob put it. Coo- you yeah. know, it's, it's interesting you say that because Bob Cousy has pointed out that it wasn't until he really got older because all this stuff is happening in the moment that when he will read something that a Bill Russell wrote in retrospect or he'll read something in hindsight that even though he was there when these things are happening, now that he's, well, cause he's in his 90s now, but even when he was you know much older, he was, you know, when you're playing and you're a warrior and these are your teammates and these are your guys and these are your battle companions, you do realize that they're indignities, but because some of these things are still law in society as a whole and sports is just a microcosm, you don't realize that maybe you could have even spoken up a little more when you were Bob Cousy. And Jerry West has said some of the same things about Baylor. It was almost like they were playing in separate NBAs even though they were all in the same league. It's like, okay, you're Jerry West, and you're getting, you know, Janssen sportswear contracts, and you're, you know, doing some ads where you're able to get endorsements that Elgin may not be getting, even though he's been in the league longer than you. And West has said that, you know, when he got older, he felt a little awkward about the fact that they were, you know, treated differently as superstars, not just like checking into hotels and and travel and accommodations and things like that. But just the fact that when you're somebody's coworker or you, you know, to your point, working around a woman or uh, hailing a cab for a woman after work or considering, you know, women can't do this after work, you know, it's dark outside, walk this lady outside, make sure she gets an Uber or what have you. She's not a guy. She can't, she has different considerations about safety and security as you. There are things that you could be doing in real time that you don't realize when you're older, looking back on the fact when somebody says, this is how I was treated because, you know, after the, you know, I was a Holocaust survivor, this is how I was treated because I was a first lady to do this on this job. You know, like, am I cognizant of places where I'm in a bubble and I'm insular and I'm not, you know, aware of these things going on around me? And West and Kuzia both said that, you know, looking back, they realized how oblivious they were to some of these things. And you say playing in different leagues, and it makes me think of how we all have our own movie that we see. You know, Even a pair of twins are different. One is on the side of the cradle looking out the window. I heard someone describe it as it once. And the other one's on the inside, doesn't see out the window. So it's we're, we all have that different vision. And also, 
for Elgin Baylor, he's not walking around constantly thinking about this. I mean, this is the world that he lives in, right? So it's like, do fish know that they're wet? If they're not going to sit down and, and talk about it, and he's not going to talk about every little thing, every little choice that he makes, like you said, women walking at night. Or I know for me, I always make a point, if I get on an elevator and then uh, there's just a, a woman in there, I'd stand on the other side. Because if somebody mentioned this to me, not because it was something that I did, but in, in the elevator. You know, I mean, I'm a pretty warm and fuzzy guy, but at that point, I, I'm playing with animals all day because I'm in veterinary medicine. But if I get on, I mean, I'm a dark, swarthy, tall guy. I could look annoyed because I have the New Yorker face on, you know. I'm just trying to be conscious of it, stand on the other side. Yeah, he doesn't know who you are. Yeah, of course. I mean, and Elgin Baylor, you know, he's not going to be talking all the time about it. She's bringing her wealth of experiences, for better or worse, into that elevator. You're not bringing a lady's wealth of experience into that elevator. And if you're Baylor and there's an incident and Bern Mickelson happens to notice this one or Hot Rod Huntley happens to notice that one, as you say, you know, you don't live with this person 24-7 when he's going to try to buy a house for himself and his family or when he's trying to get an endorsement deal or an off-season job or growing up in segregated Washington, D.C., you're just seeing these isolated things when you happen to be in the room. I remember all in the family, we were talking about height. Gloria says, Mike, you stand down there, I'm going to walk up a couple of steps. And she says, now kiss me. And he starts to go up the steps. She says, no, stay down there. And she says, imagine now your father, all the teachers at school, everybody, every man you meet is taller than you because Sally Struthers is a little tiny actress, right? Mm -hmm. I know I notice it when somebody's taller than me. Like to me, Elgin Baylor, that's that's impressive. Mm -hmm. Somebody who's over my height because I'm used to looking down on pretty much everyone. And I, I can't imagine being like that. It, it would be such a different perspective, you know, just reaching things in stores. You know, this probably happens to you. People are always asking you to reach something in the store for them. Sure. to say, sure, I'll do it. Imagine if you're that person and there's nobody around or nobody around you want to ask mm -hmm. or nobody around that wants to help you because they're bigoted against you for one reason or another or they're just in a bad mood. I mean, people are, are nasty to anyone. But like I said, you don't have that feature of, you know, you could get thrown through a plate glass window if you're certain people. And especially not in this era. I want to make clear, you know, he starts playing right in the mid-50s. Just as on the court, he's not just picking up other people's books and moves in his life to fight for civil rights. He's before all of that. And that's when he gets a start, when he's a rookie, when he's standing up for these things. So he's he's a man out of time there, too, in a way. Yeah, it's interesting. He attended the March on Washington. He's quoted when Dr. King was assassinated. He was very active in voter registration drives in L.A. and, and Southern California. But he wasn't known for these things in the 60s. People like Russell were known for those things. Jackie Robinson, who had a little bit more liberty to speak about some of these things because he was retired. Uh, Muhammad Ali, obviously. But Baylor wasn't really known as being outspoken while he was a superstar outside of the Charleston incident. So I thought it was important to document these things in the book because this isn't something that he's credited with. He's credited with creating a certain style of playing in the game of basketball. And you mentioned Dr. King there and it reminded me of a phrase he used in a speech describing sitting next to a white man on a plane who recognized him. And he said, he told me, you know, the problem with because, you know, people are always happy to tell you the problem with you Greeks or the problem with you kids today or whatever it is. So this is what happens. He says to him, the problem with you is your people are not willing to pull yourselves up by the bootstraps the way other people have. And he used this great phrase that always stuck with me where Dr. King says, I tried to speak with him in understanding terms. 
And this, right. this is something we've been talking about already. Try like, to meet him where he is. <laughs> yeah, not just, the, again, to throw something out the window, especially in a plane at 30,000 feet. But try to accomplish something. Try to get through with them. And he talks about people are standing on the bootstraps. I'm all for pulling up by the bootstraps, but they're not the same pair of shoes that everyone is wearing here. And that's a thing that Baylor does when they talk about well, all of these black players are trying to get into the NBA and why. And, hey, there's this quota. I think it's unofficial four players per team. Mm-hmm. He says the flood of men wanting to achieve on the court is because, quote, there's a lack of opportunity for them in the world at large. That changes my perspective as much as you were talking about his parents in the federal government. After the Civil War reconstruction, they start getting opportunities to go into government. Well, William McKinley appoints more of them as postmaster general, things like that. There's as many fights. So this is how you end up with many people in those federal jobs who are black people, freedmen. And now that's down through the generations in Elgin Baylor's day. Truman integrates the military. Yeah. And so these are opportunities. So this is why you would go into that. That means so much to be able to express himself freely, but also eloquently and persuasively. And I said that before about how he persuades those players to stand with them. And even if it's 50 years later, maybe think of something that he said that gets to them and they say, I I wish I had done that differently. And maybe, hey, as long as we're still alive, we could still be forces for good and we could still stand up today, even if it's for somebody on the subway, as you were saying before. What did he use as criteria when he chose, do you think? Because he is a soft-spoken guy, and you just mentioned how he's not talked about. He didn't have Twitter and all of those things. So how did he choose, do you think, when he was going to speak and when he was going to try to speak in understanding terms as opposed to dropping an F-bomb or something uh, on somebody who who is trampling him, trying to intimidate him? Well, from what I can tell from his moral compass, it had to do with would it benefit people beyond himself and would it, would it create an image for people who are not even ball players. So I think with the 59-game boycott, it's, there's going to be exhibitions played in places like Lexington, Kentucky, because there's some ball players in the league like Frank Ramsey that attended Kentucky U. There's going to be exhibitions in the, in the Deep South. There's going to be exhibitions in places like Indiana. So this is not going to be something isolated. And somebody has to put their foot down and somebody has to draw the line. The same thing when he sued Sterling for having been fired for what he considered racial discrimination. And he even threw ageism into the original lawsuit. There are going to be other GMs who are going to have their hands tied or limited about how much they can sign a draftee for, what free agents they can go out and sign or they're restricted from signing because their owner is is so tight with the purse string, they're going to be people that are discriminated against because Donald Sterling has made insensitive comments when he's taken his (laughs) girlfriend, female companion, wife, whatever combination of women into the locker room and makes these objectifying remarks about black players and their physical attributes. This is not going to stop with Sterling, and it's not going to stop with other owners. So somebody has to decide to put their foot down. The same thing with Bob Short at the All-Star Game. So I think from what I can tell of his moral compass, it's why don't I say something about it? Because other people might not have either the platform, although there's a lot of risk-reward with doing it if you have a platform because you have the most to risk, or they might not be built that way. They might not be wired to make that stance. And I come from a type of family where we, that's just what we do. So I'm gonna I'm gonna be the person that maybe does go out on a limb, and who knows what Bob Short is gonna do? But you know something? 
Bob Short needs us probably a little bit more than we need him. He can't play. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly nobody could play like him. He's not going to be replaced. It's not going to be the kind of threat where you say, well, hey, there's there's 10 people in college that want your job that'll do your job and do it better. You know, they, he really has a lot of leverage. And it's hard for us sometimes to realize we have that leverage. And he recognizes it. I mean, the guy was and, and is, I'm sure, but I'm being super aware of his abilities, his responsibilities, his play. I mean, maybe it's part of what made him able to revolutionize the game is that he really wasn't just looking at what was on his plate that minute. And I like somebody who looks at it from above and from all the different angles. It's a problem-solving thing, really. Well, it's interesting. Like, even when he's vulnerable, I mean, obviously, segregation and Jim Crow are, are situations where he's vulnerable, even if he is uh, an entertainer. But even when he's at his most vulnerable, he seems to have this, no matter what I'm going to experience here, I'm going to experience it fully as Elgin Baylor. For instance, when the Lakers were on that flight that you spoke about, where they had to have that emergency landing in Marshalltown, Ohio, and they don't know whether the you know plane loses an engine and there's no lights, on, you know, there's no electricity on the plane, the plane is dark. Of course, it's cold because it's over Iowa. <laughs> Everybody is afraid for their lives. And this is Gosh. like, this is not a full-size commercial jet. This is just a hop to another city where they're going to play an NBA game. And the players are, you know, fearing for their lives. <laughs> and everybody asks all the uh, other players in interviews after this happened, how how did Baylor, you know, respond to this emergency? And it was like, well, Els, you know, he kind of pulls his, $350 top coat around him and he grabs a blanket from the front of the plane and he puts it over his legs and he kind of punches up so that his coat is sort of buttoned up against the cold, you know, dressed stylishly as he always is. And they're like, Els, I mean, what, <laughs> what's going on with you? And he's, and he's got this, this presence like, if I'm going out, I'm going out pretty much <laughs> style like like a cover magazine male model or something like that <laughs> and it's another way like just just in the moment to have that natural leader natural inspirational thing flying something like a dizzy like you're, you're terrified you you just lose yourself he doesn't seem you in fact that was what you were just saying he never seems to lose he himself he didn't break he didn't break character yeah <laughs> Even though, they, even though they had to land on the cornfield. Yeah. Well, and I and I just like somebody. It's always my highest compliment when I say to somebody, "You're the same. It's the same person." You know, whether you're talking to a president or if you can walk with kings, right? The if poem, Rudyard Kipling. You know, if you can walk with kings, if you, all these things. And I say, I have one friend in particular. I say, "You're the same guy." I mean, sometimes that's not great because you don't necessarily want to say the same thing to a president or a senator, or, or that you'll say to you know <laughs> to your friend over a beer. But it's good because you never doubt that person. Whereas some people, you'll hear them badmouth somebody, and then you see them together, and he's acting like they're the best of friends, and you say, "Well, well, what's that guy saying about me then? How can you be two different people?" Yeah, and a society where there's two separate universes going on, at least ethnically, there's a nickname, an unofficial nickname that Bob Cousy sort of made up for him himself. He said, I always considered him or called him Elegant Baylor. You know, he's, he's an athlete, but he's got this princely quality that Frank DeFord captures in that SI cover uh, article in the NBA preseason issue of October 66, where Cousy talks about it with the Elegant Baylor quote. DeFord calls it almost like a regal air. It's something about this 
man who <laughs> he sort of unofficially was the Mr. Blackwell of the NBA in terms of criticizing guys about their attire and the dress code <laughs> and things like that. And even Bill Russell said guys in the NBA pretty much when they were <laughs> when they were dressing on road trips, they were like, and this is not on his team. This is league <laughs> league wide. Is like, is Elton going to prove this suit? <laughs> Well, the buzzer is about to sound, so I wanted to wrap up with something about your inspirations. Obviously, Elgin Baylor is one, and now one of mine as well, having read your book. But in the acknowledgments of Elgin Baylor, the man who changed basketball, you thank your late grandmother for bequeathing me, as you write, both through genetics and reading, her fondness for wordplay, unquote. Now, I really enjoy your writing style. I even mentioned that I enjoy your tweets I enjoy the way you sprinkle quotes from all over through the book. This is definitely a style that jumps out in a sports book especially, but in any book. So I wonder if you could give us a taste of how your grandmother was over your shoulder as you worked on this project, because you could easily get bogged down just in the stats, because he does have many great and impressive stats, but then you'd miss out on the intangibles that define Baylor's greatness, the things that you count that don't count and the things that count that can't be counted. And you talk about Einstein in the book when you're making that mention. You, you could easily have missed that writing the book if you didn't have this writing style, this ability to see everything. So tell us about your grandmother. How do you feel that she would have picked up this book and said, oh, I, I like that right there. That's perfect. Well, she probably would have liked the chapter titles because my grandmother was a person when I was a little kid of three and four and five watching TV that I noticed that she liked wordplay, she liked rhyme, she liked jingles, and she liked alliteration. And she liked reading poetry to me, you know, sort of obviously on her knees. So, but the, but when she would read a poem like, say, The Song of Hiawatha by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, she wouldn't read it monotones, she would read it with the rhythm of the um, Native American names in the first few lines of the poem. And that made me like words in a certain way and like verbosity in a certain way. She liked nicknames and entertainers' nicknames. She really was fond of ads and things like that. He used alliteration. And even though she wasn't in a field where she was living a life of the mind, so to speak, she sparked an interest in the way that words could be used to market something or, you know, you talked about how people uh, on Madison Avenue personalized things in commercials so that everything had a face and a voice. Her kind of response to television and things like that on radio was clever song hooks and clever jingles and clever little uh, devices that were used in poetry. And by her picking up on those things, when I was three and four and five, it made me think of words the way some people think of numbers, I guess, or the way magicians might think of uh, illusion or sleight of hand. I thought of, you know, words are kind of these things that you can manipulate to evoke a certain sentiment. And I got that from her, you know, campaign slogan, catchphrases, all those types of things. She didn't necessarily know what those things were called by the people who were inventing them. But she really had a deep love for them. And without her actually saying anything about them to me, she passed that fondness for those things down. And that made me want to read more and notice when those things were happening and 
you know, when I was a little kid, I noticed that there were people that made a living off things like that, like <laughs> Rob Petcher on the Dick Van Dyke <laughs> Show and Darren Stevens on Bewitched. They were making this living by putting words together in a clever fashion. I thought that was kind of neat. Well, Bijan Bain, author of Elgin Baylor, The Man Who Changed Basketball. I was glad we got to bring our grandmothers, both of them, alive a little bit today, talking about dancing, speaking lemons, and then talking about words. <laughs> and the influence that you make, and that's what this life is of Elgin Baylor, but both as a player and just as a man off of the court. And so it's a great book. I hope people will pick it up. Hall of Famer Al Adels writes, The Mark of a Great One, as they talk about you long after you've stopped playing. They'll be talking about Elgin Baylor for as long as there are hoops on backboards. And thanks to your book, they'll be having an informed conversation. This is really an engaging biography. I wish you the best of luck with it. I'm glad we finally managed to chat about it, that I got my hands on it, and it's going to have an honored place on my shelf. I hope people will want to pick it up. Well, thanks for the insightful questions, and especially the familial ones. You talk about wordplay, you know, the expression, OK Boomer, has, has gained a lot of uh, traction and, and coinage in the uh, in the lexicon now. But as much as people like to belittle that era, there is something about growing up on what is now called vintage TV and vintage radio and vintage advertising and Mad Magazine and National Lampoon and all that, with the way that I was raised, that again, instilled this almost reverence for creativity, which sometimes expressed itself in satire. There's something about it in the pre-digital era that as much as people might want to say, uh, you know, everybody's becoming get off my lawn and everybody's becoming like, okay, Boomer, we get it. Your your stuff was better than ours. But (laughs) I'm not saying that our stuff was better than yours. It's not a matter of right or wrong or better or worse, but Every time I turn on one of those shows where people are uh, in singing competitions, they're always singing songs from the 1970s. <laughs> that's true. That's true. You look at the longevity of that, and that's and that's a thing here. And it was nice to see Elgin Baylor get the get the credit for how much of an inspiration he does. And it doesn't mean doesn't mean you can't go out and improve on it. I think you can go out and hey, if you think you can change the game, you don't have to change it the way he did or or imitate him or apply him to your game. But man, if you need somebody to inspire you to make change in anything. This is the guy. This is the book to read. Everybody likes originals. He might have been the Charlie Parker of his sport. I can't wait for people to pick it up. I hope they'll let me know what they think. No, thank you again for having me on. I really enjoyed the interview. Again, the book is Elgin Baylor, The Man Who Changed Basketball. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at the historyauthor.com page for this episode. By buying the book through us, you help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My thanks to B. Jean Bain for another really entertaining, fun conversation. You got just a taste today of this sports pioneer who revolutionized his game, doing so in the face of obstacles that would have exhausted mere mortals. Visit bijanc.wordpress.com and follow our guest on Twitter at bijanc.bain. And while you're online, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean, Instagram at The History Author Show, or Facebook.com slash History Author. You can also check out my previous conversation with today's guest. That's back when we climbed on our Schwinn Stingray bikes to chat about his book, Martha's Vineyard Basketball. 
how a resort league defied notions of race and class. Both titles are fast moving and inspiring, so I hope I've inspired you to pick them up for really enjoyable reads. It's history that will stick with you long after that last page. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. I've done almost 200 of these interviews now, so if you've enjoyed what you heard, there's a ton of stuff in the archives you could always go back and enjoy. That includes the archives at iTunes, and if you are a subscriber there, I hope you'll please take a minute to leave a review and give us a couple of stars. Five stars would be very nice. But since Elgin Baylor has inspired me to be humble, I'll try not to push my luck. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.